Welcome back to another episode of the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today's episode is a follow-up to last week's content on Masanobu Fukuoka's natural farming method. We're chatting today with Eric Texier of Bresame Vineyards in south-central France, a traditional forgotten until recently winemaking region of France. What makes Bresame Vineyards special isn't just its ancient history and the unique soils found there, but the stewardship of Eric Texier. His focus and trust in allowing the landscape to function as an ecosystem has paid dividends, rewarding him with high-quality, beyond-organic wines and a vineyard that is more prepared than most for the future climate changes bringing. Talking with Eric was like talking to one of those old family friends whose wisdom doesn't come across as preachy, but reminds you of how little you know about the world and how exciting that learning process can be. Resume wines can be found across the world, and if you're interested in learning more about his low-impact approach, you'll truly appreciate this discussion. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into winemaking? Well, that was a while ago. I'm not sure I remember, right? But for sure, the, I, was, I was a passionate uh, drinker. <laughs> uh, I loved drinking wine, discovering wine. And uh, after a few years working for the uh, nuclear industry, I wanted to be outside uh, to have a different life. Uh, so I asked myself, uh, what could I do? And there were a few options and among them uh, winemaking. So I, I went back to school. That was in 93. And uh, I did some internship in Burgundy. And after that, I, I decided that it was a good idea. So I started five years later in 98, first buying grapes and making wine. And then uh, quite fast, I, uh, I decided to work uh, my own vineyards because I was not very pleased with what I could get in terms of uh, farming practices from the people I bought the grapes from. So yeah, 2001, I started to uh, farm by myself in a tiny little place in the Northern Rhone called Brezem. So that was the beginning of the story. Awesome. One of the things that stands out about you is your land management practices. You've mentioned in interviews that Amasanobu Fukuoka was a, an influence on your practices. And I kind of want to wonder, or I kind of wonder, how is that taken in terms of like the wine industry when you started doing this? Because wine vineyards are so meticulous about like sugar content and grapes. And your response was basically the land knows best. Uh, so what was kind of the response to that when you started getting into that? Well, you have to realize that back then, so that was uh, more than 20 years ago, almost 30 years ago, there was still uh, two kinds of people making wine in France. Extremely traditional farmers and more modern uh, farmers, if I, can, if, he, if I can call them farmers. Uh, and their, their approach was very, very different. The traditional, what I call traditional farmers, we're practicing vine growing the way it has been done for centuries. So modern approach was not part of the picture for them. They were still uh, farming with very, very uh, frugal means, 
maybe a tractor, but certainly not like a very modern tractor with very modern tools, uh, certainly not with chemicals. And uh, yeah, I trained with the, the, the two kind of these people. So I trained with one that was already 80 years old. So back in 93, so he started growing vines and making wine between the two wars. And he was really farming and acting and doing his wines the way it has always been done. On the other hand, I went to places where people were more modern in their approach. So I could, you know, I could decide in a way, uh, what do I want to do? Uh, And by far the traditional uh, approach uh, was very dear to my uh, feelings. I felt much better with these people than the the people who trained as winemakers, who practiced like, uh, you know, engineers more than farmers. Yeah. Again, I was not the only one around doing uh, doing what people have been doing for years. So uh, the thing is, my age, at my age, most like a vast majority of the people would do the modern way. Yeah. So the only thing was that my friends were 40 years older than me. <laughs> but they, they, they totally understood what I was doing. And uh, of course, because it was their life. Uh, so th- I, it was not like a, sh- a cultural shock. We cannot say that. It was more like a relationship relationship. Uh, I don't know, parents to uh, kids. <laughs> I was the kid, they were the yeah, parents. It's like yes. going to your grandparents. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, it's funny how things that are old become new again. And I think uh, my grandfather made one, he uh, had a vineyard in Southern Italy before we moved to the United States. And uh, he would still make wine in the basement. Obviously, he couldn't, in New England, we couldn't grow the grapes that he had in Southern Italy. So he would get the juice and or the grapes and he would press it himself with his old press. And um, when I started making wine myself, you know, as a kid, I didn't really pay attention. I I didn't know what he was doing. And uh, when I started getting into making my own wine, making my own beer, and I would talk to my dad because my grandfather had passed and I would say, oh, you know, what do you know what he did for yeast? And he's like, he didn't add any yeast like it it was all natural. Like and growing up today, it's it's almost like you start with like the traditional conventional methods of doing things. And then you start to learn that that's not actually traditional. This is something that's happened in the last 30, 40, 60 years where we, we don't, or we control every aspect of the production line versus working with nature, letting the wild yeasts come in, allowing for the, the regionals flavor, a region's flavors to impact what the wine's going to taste like. That was really hard as somebody young and like I'm reading all these books and it's like saying you have to do these things, you know, pay attention to all this different stuff. And then the previous generation was just kind of like, why would you pay attention to it? It's going to work. And um, there's a a sense of, I think, power involved in that where people want to have that power over the landscape and giving that power back to the landscape can be really frightening. But also something you probably have experienced is that it's empowering in some ways to have that trust in the landscape that it's going to do the right thing yeah absolutely 
again, this is like uh, the opposition between uh, farming and and working land and making wine almost as a as an uh, as a food a food processed. Yeah. Uh, so the farmers, for them, making wine was just like what five percent of their time. And mostly, uh, it was the end of a process that started with pruning, and they really didn't pay too much attention to uh, winemaking for itself. It was just the result of nine months of work, and uh, if everything was done correctly in the vineyard, then winemaking was just the end of the, of the, the the whole process. It was not. Was not a goal by itself. Absolutely. So, I, learning from these people for me, uh, I realized later, and especially uh, when I came to the US, uh, meeting my customers, I realized that uh, winemaking there was like a big thing, uh, something that seems very um, like sophisticated and difficult for most of the consumers, which is which was. Not the case back then in France. People wouldn't yeah. ask, uh, are you using a neutral oak or uh, or new oak? People didn't care. They, did, they <laughs> didn't even care about the grapes. As long as it tastes good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for me, it was kind of natural to step back into uh, the old school uh, uh, farming and winemaking. Yeah. It was not like a very special move or whatever. Yeah. I was not rich. Uh, I didn't get my vineyard from my family. So there was not like a, a financial pressure behind me. Huh? Yeah. So it was kind of natural to go the, the, the easy, natural way. Yeah. In some ways, uh, it's the inverse of like, you know, you have this idea of you're going to open a, a start a vineyard and you have to do all these things to do it right. But also taking your hands off of so much of the process. One of the things you've talked about is you've tried a lot of different techniques and some have succeeded and some have failed. So I was curious about maybe what, what that looks like today, maybe some of the things you thought would work when you started and you hadn't had a lot of experience, anything that stands out in particular? Things have changed. When I started, uh, I would say that we couldn't sense yet the, the, the global warming climate change my practices or the what i um, i realized i wanted to do as uh, farming practices in the vineyard was more about ethics i didn't feel comfortable using uh, herbicides or pesticides because i could realize easily that that was all these techniques were designed to obtain high yields and big money from the same piece of land. And I was not into that. I, di I didn't make wine because I wanted to be a millionaire. Uh, I wanted to make wine because it was fun to be outside. I loved the product. So why using all these uh, hardcore techniques if I just needed to make a few thousand bottles of wine not millions. Uh, if my customers were more, were more interested in uh, 
the way the wine was made than the price of the wine. So my ecosystem, in a way, was not asking for a, a financial or, a, or yield performance. Yeah. Uh, I was not pushed by that. Okay, so uh, at the beginning, my the my my main uh, concern was it ethics, not polluting, not killing the soil, not uh, killing the vines, not changing vines every ten years because they were dying uh, because too much was asked to them. So I would say that two thousand and three was the first time where I realized that maybe it was not just about ethics, but it was also probably about surviving at one point. And then 09, and well, the, the real beginning was probably 09, when we realized that uh, we had uh, in the Northern Rhone, Northern Rhone is not a Mediterranean climate, or it was not back then. Huh? We had quite cold winter, lot of rain, warm and uh, sunny uh, uh, summers for sure, but definitely not like Sicily. But starting in 09, uh, rain uh, started to almost disappear during the growing season. So conditions were drier. Vines showed signs that they were struggling at one point what we call a hydric stress. We had things that I've never seen before, except in Austria, it was a sunburn on skins. So after a while, I realized that uh, probably some very traditional techniques that I've been uh, learning from my uh, old school masters uh, back in the 90s was not up to date if I if I wanted to take in account the climate change. So a lot of things that I've, I did for the first 10 years working in the vineyard changed afterwards. Huh? Like when I, I started uh, farming, plowing was kind of a big thing, yeah? especially uh, in, in the northern part of France. Well, no, 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 also in the southern part of France, but instead of uh, fighting weeds, uh, with chemicals, the traditional way was plowing. Plowing under the rows, but also between the rows. And well, O3 was the first time I saw that it was um, usually, it was considered that plowing during summer was as beneficial to the vines as uh, watering in a way. And then in Austria, I realized that maybe not, because I noticed that some vines after like a very light superficial plowing, starting to show signs that they were a bit under hydric stress. And 09 confirmed that. So starting in 09, I decided that I, I should work on something different than having like a clean, totally weeded soil under the rows and between the rows. And uh, so at that point, I started, I, I already started to experiment, but I did a large scale experiment on uh, growing a cover crop between the rows and not plowing during the dry season. 
then I also realized that it was not that simple, that using recipes that I saw in Alsace or in Burgundy or in Beaujolais, where people were already doing this kind of uh, practice, it could work sometimes on some places, but it didn't work other times and on other places. So uh, that the cover crop thing would be like a huge piece of work to understand exactly what I could do, what I should do, when, how, what plant I should grow. So I started to experiment a lot of different things according to the type of soil I had in the vineyards. So that was the first move was uh, trying to get rid of the plowing keeping cover crop between the rows full-time. So did that involve trying to find more native plants yeah. to cover crop with? Was that more successful? Yeah, exactly. So I, I worked a while uh, on which plant, on which so uh, soil, because I have two different sites on both sides of the Rhône. One is limestone and clay, where the vines are not suffering from uh, hydric stress as bad as on the other side of the Rhône where I have granite, like deep granite, decomposed granite with no clay, so nothing to retain the moisture. Mm. So we started uh, mostly to see the uh, blend of uh, three types of plants in, on the limestone in Brezem, uh, mostly legume. So most of the time like peas, faba, uh, then uh, a grain that could be rye, that could be uh, all type of wheat, uh, different things. And uh, one radish usually, or a beet, beetroot. Yeah, get the layers. Yeah, to make uh, like a volume of organic manure. Yeah. This worked very well in Brezem, at least until 2018. Uh, I could say that we, find, we found a, a very good balance between uh, the cover crop and the vines. But on the granite side, it was a very, very different uh, situation. So no way we could keep uh, like, uh, well, first, it was almost impossible to grow a, a radish or beetroot there. The soil is, is too light. So unless you water like crazy, you don't get anything. You get like <laughs> a few leaves, but you never get like the root. Yeah. Then uh, we, we discovered also that in terms of legumes, some were doing much better on the, on the granite than on limestone, especially lentils. Something, I don't know the name in English, called fevrol. It's kind of a faba, but not exactly. It's not used for human uh, food. It's mostly used for animals. I think we actually call it the same. Ah, okay. Certain types of uh, fevrol did much better. And the grain, it, it had to be rye, in fact. Uh, the only thing that would grow was a specific varietal of rye that they grow traditionally in Brittany on granite. And so we had to find something to replace the radish and faba. Um, and that, that, that took a while before we found a solution that is kind of a weird solution. It's not a, it's not a radish or a beetroot. It's, it's a flower that does like a rhizome. Yeah. 
with a tuber. And as soon as you cut the, the flower, the rhizome will uh, kind of uh, decompose. And that was the only thing that could survive in, on the granite long enough to make a root, like a big root, to make a, quite a comfortable amount of uh, organic manure. And uh, that was not too tough on the vines after uh, the, the, the beginning of uh, the vine growing itself. Yeah. Because we found some radish, especially oh, yeah, some kind of Japanese radish that did well in the granite, but was too tough as a, its demand in terms of water was too tough for the vines after uh, mid-April, beginning of May, yes. Yeah. So it took some adjustment, and then the the you know the the hardcore global warming heat starting in 2018, and we have to redo it again. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So we're working on different type of things. We also are working. So I was like direct seeding. I was not plowing for seeding. So I had like a quite a heavy uh, cover crop. Uh, so it's fine on the limestone, but again, on the granite, it's more difficult than this. So on the granite now, uh, we are experimenting some grass that you find around the Mediterranean uh, coast. Mm -hmm. Different types of uh, grass that include like a specific type of mean, thi uh, mint, thyme, mm -hmm. and to do like a very light cover crop with those plants and to seed into it one row out of two and to start again to do some very light superficial uh, plowing at the very beginning of July, uh, end of June, beginning of July. We, we realized that, to give you an idea, for the nine first months this year in Ardèche, we had... Uh, less than five inches of rain. Oh, wow. For the first nine months. Huh? And you said usually you get about two feet, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's extremely low now during the growing season, and we have to be extremely careful with the competition between the cover crop and the vines. Yeah. Well, at least before we, we can find solutions on the rootstocks, maybe using... Rootstocks that are, that are less demanding in terms of water. So we have to work on both sides, the vines themselves, but also the, the cover crop and the soil. Yeah. So this isn't a process. I have no answer. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. We're still working on it for sure. It's like a big thing for the next uh, 10 years. But we have to reconsider a lot of things. Uh, we have... We have been reconsidering a lot of things for the past five, four or five years, yes. Yeah, I, I feel like you would think with the wine industry where grapes are so sensitive to change that it would be a hotbed of research for dealing with climate change because it's so quick. My cousin also works in wine in California and she's like, you know, the future of California wine is just... Like it's going to be totally different than what it is today in 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 our lifetime. The types of wine, the quality wines, the hotbeds of where wine comes from, 
all of those things are going to change in the next 20 years. Yeah. It's really interesting to see that very quick understanding in the wine community, while even in agriculture, it doesn't seem to be changing as quickly as a whole. And I think it, uh, seeing folks like yourself doing this work, it's really, it provides a lot of optimism for figuring out some of these solutions where you're seeing it and you're making those changes today. And especially folks like yourself that are working to do it in alignment with nature and nature's needs. I think that's that's really important. Thanks for tuning in to the Poor Proles Almanac. We've been exploring new areas of content, including new podcasts such as Tomorrow Today and the Gastropocene with yours truly, but also building a network with folks like Death and Friends. We're also building gardening resources and have a bunch of other content coming in the future. If you'd like to get more information or to sign up for our newsletter where we announce new projects, head over to poorproles.com and click on the Our Email List tab. The email list is only used for important, newsworthy content, and we won't clog your inbox, and you'll get less than six emails a year. That's poorproles.com at the Our Email List tab. One of the things I've heard you talk about, too, and I think I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, is that you don't use livestock in your... um, vineyards, which is something that's becoming more common here in the U.S. And your, your reasoning is that your soil is rich enough. I'm interested to know what you mean by rich enough and um, kind of if that's now with climate change going on, maybe changed your thoughts a little bit. Well, the, by seeding plants, especially legumes uh, and plants that do quite a big volume of roots, as soon as they decompose, so you need to have a soil that is really alive you produce a huge amount of uh, uh, available food for the vines. We know now that uh, by seeding something like uh, 50 kilos, I'm sorry, I will will use the the international system in terms of units. Our our arbitrary (laughs) measuring system. (laughs) Yeah, by using 50 kilos on one hectare of vines, uh, 50 kilos of seeds, we produce with a normal rain during the, the, the winter, we produce something around 10 tons of uh, available uh, organic manure for the vines, which is huge. Yeah. So we, we don't have, we, except these seeds, we have no need for external input. So we don't use compost. We don't use things like this. I hope it, this was your question. Yeah, I'm, it's answering it. I, I do actually have a follow-up for that because I have heard you talk about uh, infusion macerations and it sounds like you don't use those anymore. And what exactly are those? Well, are you, are you talking about uh, farming or in, in winemaking? Oh, you know what? That's probably what that was. That's why I didn't know what it was. Is because I was like, what is an infusion maceration? I thought it may be like pureeing material and fermenting no, it this is this is for the winemaking no. yeah, yeah yeah that makes more sense it's one of my winemaking practices yes gotcha okay so that makes sense I, I don't do any punching down or stuff like this we do a very old technique called mach immergé it's submerged cap uh, so we don't have to use any uh, mechanical means to punch down or stuff like this and we do like uh, an infusion during the maceration phase. Awesome. So this has nothing to do with the farming. Gotcha. Yeah. I was like, I could see, like, I know like 
maceration can be like in fermented products to put back into the soil. So I was really curious what that was. No. Uh, but wine does make a lot more sense. We did. We did what we call a liquid compost for the five uh, first years because my the, most of the vines that I got uh, back then were chemically weeded for years, for 20, so, 30 years, and the soil was kind of dead. So to get decomposition of uh, what we seed for the cover crop, uh, we needed to have like uh, a lot of uh, microbes back in the soil. So we did a lot of different teas, what we call also liquid compost, to bring back some uh, bacteria and, uh, and fungus into the soil. And after a while, you don't need it anymore. It's my feeling, okay? Yeah. So we did this uh, intensively for five years. And then from time to time on young plantations or thing, things like this, we have to do it again, but it's just a spot thing. We, we don't have to do it like on a regular basis anymore. Yeah. Is that something that was traditional or is that something you kind of learned? Yeah, yeah. That was traditional, really. Uh, it was part of the knowledge of... Uh, very old uh, farmers that were mostly doing farming farming as uh, for themselves yeah. you know growing their own food with very very simple means and yes doing these uh, like uh, i think the the name in english is poison ivy yeah poison ivy yeah if you use poison ivy if you ferment it if you use it in a liquid and you ferment it for a while with aeration, you get something extremely alive, full of bacteria and fungus, and it's extremely efficient to spray it on the ground to bring back uh, uh, life in the soil. And this was a very traditional technique in small legume garden uh, for small farmers. Oh, wow. Never heard of that. So these kind of things, very, yeah. very easy to do. Uh, you just have to cut the, the IVs in your garden and to do the fermentation for a few weeks, uh, to, to uh, do aeration every morning uh, for three, four weeks. And you get something extremely efficient and powerful for bringing back uh, some nitrogen and uh, microbes into the soil. What's that called in French? Purin d'ortie. I'm gonna have to look that up later. Purin is very common in traditional farming, means fermenting things. So you ferment uh, weeds, uh, herbs, uh, you ferment uh, even uh, cow shit. Uh, you, yeah. you ferment things like this just to bring a lot of uh, microbes into it and then you spray it. So it's just a vector for uh, microbes. Yeah. So Purin is a very, very traditional way of doing things. To, uh, in in gardens. So I've heard of that process from other parts of the world. I, I didn't know that it was also common uh, traditionally in France. So that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's something kind of interesting about where you are. You're in a very old part of France that was kind of forgotten as a winemaking country. You've been there for a bit now and it's kind of come back. And it's uh, it's really interesting that it's coming back as climate change is forcing the way we've grown grapes to change and uh, what the ideal, you know, as we call it, the ideal zone for growing grapes is also changing. So I'm a little bit interested to know why you chose where you are and um, 
if you're starting to see other people around you changing their methods to more similar to what you're doing? Well, I, honestly, I didn't, I, I didn't choose this place uh, for climate consideration. Well, not exactly. So I, I, I'm not like a, a big wine guy. Okay, I don't drink uh, 15 and a half percent of alcohol wines. It's not my thing. <laughs> I'm more a Jura, Loire guy, uh, Beaujolais, uh, but probably not a Chateauneuf du Pape guy. So uh, Northern Rhone for me was kind of a very interesting part of France because uh, they had two specific grapes, Syrah, well, not two, not only two, two for me. But very specific local grapes, Syrah, which is the local grape in the Northern Rhone. I know that Syrah is all over the planet now, but Syrah is originating in the Northern Rhone. And uh, also for me, Roussana. And so I wanted to make mono varietal wines. Didn't want, I was more interested in terroir expression. And as terroir expression is concerned, usually... At, at least when you were trained in Burgundy, you have the, the conviction that uh, to express terroir in a very deep way, you need only one grape. The good one at the good place, but only one. Yeah. Because as, as soon as you start blending grapes, you could have a huge impact on the style of the wine. And so where is the terroir? Uh, you never know unless you do the exact same blend, you never know. So I wanted to grow in a, in a place where there was only a very few grapes and one grape per wine. Northern, Northern Rhone back then was a quite unknown place. Uh, Brezem specifically, it was almost disappeared. And uh, there, was op there were opportunities there that I couldn't find like in Burgundy or in Champagne, no way. Yeah. So uh, it was it was a decent place for me because land was available, uh, still a lot of old school growers I could learn from, uh, unlike Bordeaux, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, Northern One was, uh, but it could have been Beaujolais, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Well, still, I decided to go for uh, Northern One, especially especially Brezem. Because in the Northern Rhone, we mostly have a primary type of soil, so granite and schist, and very few limestone. And Brezem is a place that every, where everything is about limestone. So I had the climate of the Northern Rhone, so continental climate, very cold winter, hot summers, with the, the, the soil that you never find in this place. So for me, it was like a unicorn terroir where I could uh, try to achieve some kind of Burgundian Rhone wines. That was the idea at first. Yeah. Then the global warming came, climate change. And of course, being on limestone and clay is a much better choice now than being on granite. Yeah. So I was lucky in a way, but it was not meant, <laughs> properly speaking. Mm. I'm assuming that a lot of the farmers that were there when you started are not there anymore. Hey, of course. Since they're old or they were older. Are you seeing people move into these farms and these uh, vineyards, managing them traditionally? Or uh, did they come with new techniques and maybe 
with climate change they're reconsidering or I've spoken actually with someone over in France, Dr. Kifas, who is a, a natural beekeeper. And he was talking about how people over there are much more open to treatment-free beekeeping because of the fact that they've seen his successes. And I'm curious if you're kind of seeing that same thing. No, for sure. First, uh, the thing that is happening now, uh, especially in Ardèche, is that a lot of uh, people who, who farmed for the past 40 years have no one to take over. So it's mostly young kids who are coming and they don't come to do industrial farming. They come to do uh, as natural as possible farming and winemaking, by the way. But it's true also for a lot of different type of farming than uh, vine growing. So there is a, a young generation, uh, mostly in their 30s, who are coming and so they, they are doing things very traditionally, I would say, but with the very new approach based on uh, the impact of climate change. So they don't use like uh, robots. <laughs> they, so they, they, it's not a high tech thing, but also they don't use watering because they realize that it's, uh, it's kind of a nonsense. Maybe it's a solution for now because we still have a bit of water available. <laughs> but for sure, 10 years or 20 years from now, it's not going to be a solution. These young people, they, they, for them, solving problems for a short period of time is absolutely not a solution. So they are working long time in a traditional way with a very new approach. So typically, they won't replant, like in Ardèche, a lot of uh, young people are not replanting traditional grapes on traditional rootstocks because they do believe, uh, they are right, that it's, it's the end. Growing Syrah on granite, on, on steep slopes, south-facing, it's going to work maybe for 10 more years, but it, it's the end of it. So they are doing traditionally, but definitely they are introducing new or very old varietals that nobody would grow anymore for the 50, past 50 years. Uh, they are, uh, you know, digging into uh, rootstock libraries to find rootstocks that were known for being extremely resistant to drought. So a new approach and a traditional way of doing things. That's awesome. It sounds like you're pretty optimistic about the future of the, the region and these well, traditional practices you know i'm i'm an old man now and so uh, <laughs> it's a new uh, i don't work in my vineyards almost anymore except for a few things especially uh prospective but otherwise it's my uh, kids generation who is in charge now with farming and so i'm surrounded by kids i'm almost the old uh, white male you know <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's around I mean me it's all uh Young people, young women, uh, full of enthusiasts, uh, very well trained, uh, very so well. I guess being in contact with this new generation of people who have, I mean, they they understand clearly what the the problem will be in the future. So yes, it makes me uh, kind of optimistic because. Uh, they are definitely not my generation with all these certitudes that we had uh, 
Well, so no, I'm, I hope it will be enough. I appreciate it as someone who's in their thirties and is um, trying to reconnect with this, you know, history of my family that, um, you know, here in the U S I think a lot of it is brushed off as like naive kids that don't know what they're doing. So to hear from someone else overseas that sure they may be naive and they may be doing things kind of weirdly, but they're going in and they're trying to figure it out. And there, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so you do to get back to your wine, which we really haven't actually talked too much about you guys, you sell internationally, correct? It's in the U S yeah. So I know a couple of places near me carry it. Any particular years varieties that you would say if somebody is not super into wine, but wants to try some of this, uh, organic beyond organic, uh, wine, what, what you would recommend? So I think we first, there are, there are two ways of drinking. There are two, no, no, but there are two ways of drinking wine in my mind. I would say a traditional European way, uh, kind of intellectual. So based on history, uh, so the, probably the, the perfect example of these wines is Burgundy. So to really enjoy a bottle of Burgundy, you need to know who made the wine, where does it come from, where specifically does it come from? And it's not like a, a mile away. It's like a few meters away. Huh? <laughs> because uh, one bottle can cost uh, thousands of euros or dollars uh, just because it's 10 meters away from another one that is 50 euros. So, so this is a very specific way to enjoy wine. And I, I do enjoy this type of wine and this type of drinking. And of course, for this kind of thing, I think terroir-driven wines are very interesting. So I do have uh, a few very terroir-driven wines, uh, usually one varietal, like I said before. And for me, it's either Syrah for the reds or Roussan for the whites. And I do it on the two terroirs. So the granite part, Saint-Julien, Saint-Alban, and the limestone part, uh, Brezem. So you can always compare, when I make a wine, you can always compare what the impact of terroir will be because it's only one varietal. It's made the exact same way with very few intervention and no additives. And it's, so the main difference is beyond my will. It's the, it's the place. So for people who are into this kind of uh, thing, uh, so drinking also culture in a way and history i would say that the syrah driven wines that i made are the best to understand what is terroir and uh, what is my aim as a, a terroir driven winemaker then there is also another way to drink wine and this is also a way that i love a lot <laughs> it's uh, drinking wine just because it's joyful uh, funny because it makes you laugh with your friends and and these are wine you don't want to have to think about the terroir the place the grape the way it's made no this is uh... so in this i try to make a few wines like this especially Chafou and adele who are two a blend no the, the adele is only one varietal it's now only one varietal uh, claret and the Chafou is a blend of Saint-Saul, 
a bit of Grenache still and a bit of whites also. So it's a, a red wine with 20% of white grapes in it. And these wines are made for a party. I mean, you know, joy, music. Casual drinking, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a very different type of approach, except for farming, where we do exactly the same thing. Then the winemaking is absolutely different, of course. The aging also. And again, the... When I make a bottle of Brezem, I want the people to be able to taste my place, to taste the vintage. Uh, how was it? Uh, was it rainy? Was it tough? Was it easy? Uh, and this must show in a terroir-driven wine. Yeah. When I make a bottle of Shafu, it's totally different story. I want people to have a good time, uh, not to think too much. I would I would easily uh, do some kind of tricks to give the wine this type of uh, style instead of showing the terroir. One example is I'm not like a carbonic maceration uh, huge fan, but for the Chafou, like 20, in, in 2021, we had like a difficult year with a lot of disease, a lot of rain, uh, and the wine, if I would have made the wine extremely uh, traditionally, it would, it would have been probably too uh, austere. So I used quite a bit of carbonic maceration this time to make a joyf joyful wine. So as soon as I use this kind of trick, which is not an additive, <laughs> don't get me wrong, it's only grapes. But if I use carbonic maceration to a certain amount in a wine like Chafou, then I will kill a few information from the vintage of the terroir. I, I will make it the way it is because it makes me please. But by doing so, I'm, I'm, I consider that I'm killing a bit of information, erasing a bit of information from the terroir of the vintage. But the result is joyful enough so people can pardon me uh, to go that way <laughs> i think they will I i'm not very knowledgeable about wines i enjoy uh, a good wine but one of the things that's particularly valuable to me in in that enjoyment is understanding that the wine is an encapsulated place in time that uh can never be replicated again of course and uh, that that is the beautiful part of it because you inherently in drinking it are respecting that moment yeah, because it'll never come again. And, and that part of the wine, I think here in the United States is not as enjoyed as much, but I do feel like it is coming back and that is really beautiful. And uh, I, I, as a, a drinker appreciate the work that you folks like yourself put into the process. Yeah. I think this is also something that we, I, I mean, I, I really enjoy the fact that, when people make me drink my wines somewhere, uh, I don't know, in Iowa, a wine that I bottled like 10 years ago, it's not my wine anymore. Because some people, some way, at one point, moved this bottle from one place to another, took care of it. So this bottle will, won't be the same than the one that stayed at my home. Yeah. So in a bottle of wine, there can be also a huge amount of uh, the consumer input. Yeah, I've never thought of that. 
by attention, by passion, by, you know, something really deep. And for sure, if we compare these two bottles, one that I kept at my place in my cellar and the same bottle of wine that went through different places, boats, trucks to Iowa, the result is not the same. So uh, everybody has like, you know, is doing something for this bottle of wine. Yeah. And the result has to be different. I like this idea a lot. Yeah, that, that's a, a beautiful way to understand it. Yeah, Eric, this has been a, a fantastic, really enjoyable conversation. I feel like I, I learned a ton about wine and um, I'm a bit more optimistic for the future and I definitely appreciate that. <laughs> if you're uh, if you're ever in Boston, you'll have to let me know and we'll, we'll grab a, a bottle of wine together. Oh, sure. I will. <laughs> And if you come to Charnay, don't hesitate. You can stay here. <laughs> right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah.